Welcome to the JMD podcast, a fortnightly companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease and its sister journal, JMD Reports. Every two weeks, I'll bring you interviews with authors discussing topics across the full breadth of the specialty, enticing you to read their research and filling out the stories left in the gaps. If you're enjoying the podcast, please click like on the episode, subscribe, or even leave a review, but not before listening to this latest episode on neutropenia and SGLT2 inhibitors. Okay, so we had a spate of papers accepted around May 2022, all mentioning the same drug, and it felt like everyone's talking about empaglyphosin. So obviously it made sense to bring them together, and you can see what the excitement is about. Here's a relatively cheap medication that seems to make a big difference in rare disease. And so it's wonderful to bring a collection of our authors together to discuss their papers. And they are Dr. Maria Vega de Cunha from Louvain, author of Successful Use of Empaglyphosin to Treat Neutropenia in 2G6 PC3-deficient children, impact of a mutation in SGLT5. Dr. Claudia Soler-Alfonso of the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, who wrote Untargeted Metabolomic Profiling in a Patient with Glycogen Storage Disease 1B Receiving uh, Empagliflozin Treatment. And last but by no means least, Dr. Sarah Grunert from Freiburg, who was the first author on Two Successful Pregnancies and the First Use of Empagliflozin During Pregnancy in Glycogen Storage Disease Type 1B. And Dr. Grunet was also the first author on a report in Genetics in Medicine describing the use of empagliflozin in over 100 patients. So she's a very useful person to have for this conversation. And I really hope by the end of this podcast, I can actually pronounce this word correctly. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Maria, Claudia and Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for the invitation. So today we're talking about one drug, but two conditions, this G6PC3 deficiency and glucose 6-phosphate transport deficiency, or GSD1B. I feel like all I ever do is ask people to forgive my ignorance, but I mean, are these biochemically similar conditions? So they are two different diseases, and they have similarities and they have differences. So what's similar is the neutropenia. And this is what we treat with empagliflozin. okay? So what's different is that in one hand, you have a metabolic phenotype which is found in glycogen storage disease type 1B, so GSD1B. And that's linked to a defect in glycogen metabolism in liver and in kidney. And then on the other hand, you have the G6PC3 deficient patients where you have no metabolic phenotype, but there are some developmental anomalies that affect mainly the heart, urogenital system, and the superficial venous pattern that are present in these patients. Okay. Is the reason that you get neutropenia in these two conditions the same? It's not the same, but it's linked. And for that, <laughs> um, I, I need to explain. Okay. So the metabolic phenotype in GSD1B is quite well understood. It's the result of a defect in a ubiquitously expressed transporter, which is present in a cell compartment, which is called the endoplasmic reticulum. So in liver, it is needed to transport the glucose 6-phosphate that is produced in the cytoplasm into the endoplasmic reticulum, where we have a phosphatase, which we call G6PC1, or it is the glucose 6-phosphatase, which is actually from the same family as G6PC3. And the function of this phosphatase is to dephosphorylate glucose 6-phosphate into glucose. And so this is very important, and it's particularly during fasting, because it's essential for liver and kidney cells to be able to convert the molecules of glucose, which are in glycogen, back into glucose. 
So this is necessary to prevent the concentration of glucose in blood from dropping to dangerous levels, which can result in the hypoglycemias that are characteristic in the patients with GST1D. Okay? Now, in the case of the deficiency in GCSPC3, which is a phosphatase, uh, which is present inside the endoplasmic reticulum. So we have GCHPT, which is a transporter that transports something into the endoplasmic reticulum, and we have GCHPC3, which is a phosphatase inside the endoplasmic reticulum. So it's from the same family as the glucose 6-phosphatase, but it's a different protein, and it's also present in all cell types, like is the glucose 6-phosphate transporter. Now, these patients, they don't have the metabolic phenotype, which affects the liver in GSD1B patients, but they do have neutropenia. So this neutropenia was present on one side when the glucose 6-phosphate transporter of the endoplasmic reticulum was deficient, and on the other side when a phosphatase, G6PC3, inside the endoplasmic reticulum was deficient. This indicated to us that both proteins likely played an important role in the neutrophil metabolism. And so we had a working hypothesis, which was that the glucose 6-phosphate transporter was transporting a still unknown phosphorylated metabolite into the endoplasmic reticulum of neutrophils that needed to be dephosphorylated by this phosphatase G6PC3. And so if one or the other of these two proteins was deficient, neutrophils would not be able to function and then they would eventually die. So to make a very long story short, <laughs> what we found was that the neutrophils of both types of patients accumulated vast amounts of compound, which is called 1,5-anhydrogrisitol-6-phosphate. Now, don't be scared by this name because this is just like the glucose 6-phosphate, but with one oxygen less on carbon-1, okay? It's an analog of glucose 6-phosphate, and it is formed by a side activity of the enzymes that are there to phosphorylate glucose into glucose 6-phosphate. So these, are, these enzymes are the exokinases, and they catalyze the first step in glycolysis. So essential for the cells to, to use up the glucose and make energy out of it and all, all the rest that they make out of it. So in vivo, these exokinases are very active, but they are not perfect. So they will phosphorylate this 1,5-anisoglucitol, which is the most abundant polyol that we have in blood. It comes from food, and it has a structure that is very similar to glucose. The result is that due to the lack of specificity of these exokinases, the neutrophils will make large amounts of 1,5-anisoglucitol-6-phosphate. And so the role of the glucose-6-phosphate transporter and of G6PC3 in neutrophils is precisely to collaborate to dephosphorylate this 1,5-anitroglucitol-6-phosphate and prevent its accumulation. And so you might ask, why is it important to prevent its accumulation? Well, it's because this 1,5-anitroglucitol-6-phosphate is a potent inhibitor of the exokinases, which are the enzymes that are there for the neutrophils to phosphorylate glucose. So if neutrophils cannot phosphorylate glucose, they're not going to function and they're going to die. And so this is the origin of the neutropenia. Thank you. So, um, I think I followed that all the way through. And, and you've mentioned, obviously, within GSD-1B, there's hypoglycemia and neutropenia, as opposed to just neutropenia alone, or neutropenia plus some possible um, other issues within your patients with the G6PC3 deficiency. Um, Claudia and Sarah, is, is that the end of the GSD-1B phenotype or is it more complicated than that? 
No, there's definitely a, a disease with many, many angles. Due to this inability to mobilize glycogen effectively, and the most prominent sign being hypoglycemia, uh, that's what usually brings people to medical attention in their first six months of life. But other manifestations are also visible, usually during infancy. In particular, due to the inability to mobilize glycogen, patients have significant hepatomegaly, which over time will also present with more marked liver disease and hepatic steatosis or accumulation of fat in the liver. The cells don't know what to do with glucose 6-phosphate when you have glucose 6-phosphatase deficiency. And we try to do other things with this molecule in particular, trying to fulfill energy demands. And some of the things that occur is that this glucose 6-phosphate gets broken down into lactate. And there is also secondary accumulation of acyl-CoA and hypertriglyceridemia. And normally also the fate of the molecule changes and a lot of the glucose 6-phosphate also becomes uric acid. So there's this sort of biochemical signature that patients with GSD-1B will have besides the hypoglycemia. They will also have a lactic acidemia, hypertriglyceridemia, hyperuricemia. The paromegaly uh, can be quite striking and, and uh, patients can present also with significant growth failure and failure to thrive. And the, the most striking thing is the inability to fast with patients not being able to fast for more than one or two hours without appropriate treatment. And the most complicated factor is really the subject that's bringing us here today, which is the, the cyclic neutropenia. And on top of the inability to maintain glucose levels, uh, the neutropenia makes them more prone to infections. So these are patients that are in and out of the hospital, often with severe opportunistic infections and severe hypoglycemia. Lastly, because of the same neutrophil dysfunction, there is a significant component of inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. And that also complicates long-term management as the main stem of treatment for GSD-1B is the use of cornstarch. And with the IBD presence, patients struggle with malabsorption for the cornstarch and most times having to use either continuous feeds or very frequent feeds, even every one to two hours to be able to maintain their blood sugars. So yes, it's more of the story with GSD-1B that, that makes these patients significantly ill and in constant interaction with metabolic clinics. You've obviously brought this back to the neutropenia as being one of the significant issues, and that's really the focus of our conversation and the focus here on this drug, um, Pagliflozin, which I really am cursing the manufacturers for naming it as such. But it's it's an SGLT2 inhibitor. I've just done a podcast about clitazones. I know that um, Ipalrostat has been looked at in both galactosemia and PMM2 CDG. I mean, why do the diabetics get all the best drugs? Because there are so many. <laughs> it does. It does help, doesn't it? But the thing is that it is, it is great that this new class of anti-diabetic molecules, so these SGLT2 inhibitors, which are also called gliflazines, can be repurposed to treat two rare diseases. Because no pharmaceutical company would develop a drug to specifically treat such rare diseases in an affordable price, and I think that's what's quite interesting from understanding the mechanism that we could come up with repurpose this ampagliflozin to treat these two very rare diseases, which by specifically addressing the problem of the pathophysiological mechanism in these two rare diseases. You beautifully explained how this is all about phosphorylation and dephosphorylation and, and the, the accumulation of things that you don't want within your neutrophil. So, so how does an SGLD2 inhibitor change things? So it inhibits the renal sodium glucose co-transporter, which is called SGLT2. 
So physiologically, in healthy patients, this is the renal proximal tubule glucose transporter. Its role is to reabsorb about 90% of the glucose that is filtered in the kidney. And so what happens is when the blood is filtered in the kidney, the glucose is taken out to the kidney filtrate. And then from there, it is going to be taken up back into the circulation so it doesn't get into the urine. And so what this TLT2 is doing is taking up this glucose in the urinary filtrate back into the, the circulation. So you might ask, what does this have to do with treating neutropenia in GSD1B and G6PC3 deficient patients? Well, remember that I mentioned that the problem of these patients was that they accumulated these toxic amounts of 1,500-hydroxytox-6-phosphate in their neutrophils. Um, this made us think at how we could lower 1,500-hydroxytox in blood. So it comes from the food, is getting into the neutrophils, we're making the toxic compound 1,500-hydroxytox-6-phosphate. So one way of getting rid of the 1,5-anitroglucetol-6-phosphate is to get rid of the 1,5-anitroglucetol. And this is what empagliflozine is doing, really. And what we found out from reading the literature is that both in uncontrolled diabetics as well as in diabetics that are treated with SGLT2 inhibitors, which are two situations where you have an increased glucosuria, i.e. too much glucose in urine, when this happens, these subjects have decreased concentration of 1,500-hydroxytol in blood, which is just what we were after. And they have increased urinary excretion of 1,500-hydroxytol. So these patients that take SGLT2 inhibitors, the glucose from the renal filtrate cannot be reabsorbed back into the circulation. So there is plenty of glucose in the urine. And the glucose is inhibiting the renal transporter of 1,500-hydroxytol because 1,5-anitroglucitol looks very much like glucose, then the anitroglucitol, which is also in the urine, will not be able to be reabsorbed back into the circulation. So these patients lowered their 1,5-anitroglucitol in the blood. So this is an indirect effect. And we could only do that by understanding the mechanism, by understanding that the problem was having anitroglucitol in blood making 1,5-anitroglucetol-6-phosphate in neutrophils, which is toxic, because this 1,5-anitroglucetol-6-phosphate is inhibiting the glucose metabolism, so the neutrophils are going to die. So if we decrease the inhibitor, the neutrophils function better, and they won't die, and we have more neutrophil counts. And depending on the patient, there's a variability, but we'll decrease the neutropenia, but at least in all the cases, we have neutrophils that function much better, and we can stop giving GCSF. Because GCSF does not address the real problem of this disease. GCSF just increases neutrophil counts, but there's still neutrophil counts which have 1,5-anitroglucetol-6-phosphate. So they still don't function well. While our drug gets rid of the 1,5-anitroglucetol-6-phosphate and makes that neutrophils can function better and die less. Perfect. So this is a drug that seems to work. It, it reduces a significant issue that you've got with the disease. Obviously, Maria, you've talked about a small cohort of patients with, with G6PC3 deficiency. But Sarah, you've talked about a much larger cohort of patients. You were the first author on this, this paper looking at a whole cohort of GSD1B patients and um, receiving this medication. Has it been effective? Uh, the short answer is yes, it has been immensely effective. So when the first publications came out about two years ago, Many of our colleagues started treating uh, their patients in an off-label treatment setting. And for us, it was very important to collect both the safety and also the efficacy data as quickly as possible and to make them available to our patients. 
And therefore, we started a web-based questionnaire study. Uh, two other colleagues were involved here, Saskia Wortmann from Salzburg and also Terry Dex from Groningen. And uh, in this study, we were able to collect data on 112 cases of GSD-1B, the 100 patients who already received empagliflozine in this setting. And they came from more than 25 different countries and six continents. And what we could really see is that there was a positive effect on all neutropenia-associated symptoms, so including inflammatory bowel disease, including mucosal lesions that can be very painful for the patients, including recurrent infections and also anemia, which can be a feature for patients with GSD-1B. And although the follow-up period was quite short in, in most of the patients, more than 50% of the patients could already stop their GCSF treatment, which has been the standard treatment for neutropenia in these patient cohort. I mean, it's a really good number of patients for rare disease. It's a really impressive cohort. But sometimes it's the, the small numbers, the, the individual stories that are more compelling. I know within your paper, Claudia, you talked about a little girl with um, her experience on treatment. I wonder if you could just highlight perhaps a more small scale um, account of what difference it makes to patients. Yes, absolutely. I think our patient really mirrors Dr. Groner's and Dr. Maria's experience. And as I was describing earlier, the significant morbidity that these patients go through and uh, uh, the impact in their lives is quite significant. Our patient had multiple admissions, but more remarkably, at least 13 episodes of severe hypoglycemic seizures before she came to our service for full treatment. Despite our stabilization of glucoses, she will continue to struggle with inability to fast for more than two hours. So this for the family was very demanding as well as for her and her quality of life. More remarkably, she had a significant component of inflammatory bowel disease, severe diarrhea, and recurrent ulcers in her mouth and urogenital area. So when we came around and we get confronted to this question of how to make these things better, it was actually quite refreshing to see the work of our colleagues in Europe and the possibility of using this easily accessible medication that will directly address the neutropenia and potentially uh, from there extend to improve many of the symptoms related to this disease. So I think many of us can relate to this conversation with families initially when we're using off-label medicines that at the time Dr. Groner's court was just being published. So we didn't have a lot of information, but the family was quite open to, to try. So uh, at that time, what we did was have a full sort of safety planning in case we have any complications. And, and we started using empaglifosine off-label. And the response was remarkable in terms of her quality of life and ability to fast initially. But I think more remarkably, uh, the first thing that we saw is that her ANC or absolute neutrophil count, which is something we use often to see the amount of neutrophils uh, circulating in the blood, picked up significantly. So with the help of our hematology colleagues here at Texas Children's, we were able to also uh, understand that the neutrophil function was much better. So one of the first things that uh, we did was decreasing the amount of injections with uh, GCSF, which is a medicine that is used to stimulate the growth of neutrophils and is often used in these patients to maintain good neutrophil numbers. So we were able to go from daily injections to, at this point, twice a week injections. And the patient started gaining weight and also uh, having more energy um, to the point now that she's been able to fast every four hours 
and is actually able to participate in after-school competitions and different things that are really impacting her quality of life. We didn't experience significant hypoglycemia, um, and I guess we touched uh, base later on the side effects a little bit. But the main thing that we saw was overall improvement with, with the use of empaglifosine of label in our patient experience here. One thing that it was important for us was to be able to measure a biomarker, and that's the core of our publication. And we wanted to see if we could measure one fighter neuroglucitol, 6-phosphate, which is an elusive particle to measure on a clinical chemistry basis. So, so we elected to use metabolomics as one fighter neuroglucitol was visible. And in fact, in this patient, it was significantly elevated and it correlated nicely with significant decrease through the course of treatment and it has remained within normal limits. So we wanted to also be able to contribute our experience with a potential biomarker use to uh, utilize in a clinical test for other clinicians out there to potentially this and use it long-term for their patients when uh, considering using empaglifosine in GSD-1B. Maybe I can jump in a tiny bit. Um, so if you want to see if this is working, of course, you can look at neutrophil counts and everything, but you can measure this biomarker, which Claudia just mentioned here. So in the beginning, there is a lot of 1,5-anitroglucitol in blood. You have anisoglucitol in blood, I have anisoglucitol in blood, we all have anisoglucitol in blood, but we can get rid of the 1,5-anisoglucitol 6-phosphate because we have the glucose 6-phosphate transporter and we have G6PC3 to dephosphorylate it. Our patients, they don't have the transporter or they don't have the phosphatase, so they accumulate it. So for us, it's not a problem, but for our patients, it is. But we don't need this 1,5-anitroglucitol in our blood. We can get rid of it, and we're getting rid of it in the urine by giving these SGLT2 inhibitors. And with your experience with your patients, Maria, I mean, I appreciate you're a biochemist, but the patients with the G6PC3 deficiency, when, when you gave them the empagliflizin, they equally saw the same benefit as the, as the GSD-1B patients? They did. So what you see is exactly the same, but there is a difference maybe between the two and the treatment works better for the patients that are deficient in G6PC3 than for the GSD1B patients. And this is because of one thing which might be interesting to mention. So as Sarah and Claudia mentioned, the GSD1B patients have this metabolic phenotype. And this metabolic phenotype means that their liver cannot convert glycogen to glucose, right? So they have hypoglycemias. And to prevent these hypoglycemias, you, you need to give them this cornstarch, which is a complex sugar, which is going to release in the intestine small amounts of glucose, which allows for the concentration of glucose in, in blood to be stable. And that's particularly important during the night when they fast, right? Now, the problem with this cornstarch is that it's a very important source of 1,5-anitroglucitol, which is toxic for these patients. And when you measure the 1,5-anitroglucitol in blood before you start treating these patients, you see that patients with glycogen storage disease type 1B have about 400 micromolar, while patients with G6PC3 or ALS that don't take on starch, we have about 150 micromolar. So for these patients, it's more difficult because they have to deal with their metabolic phenotype. For that, they need cornstarch, which is poisoning their neutrophils. 
because they're making more 1,5-anhydrogrucitol. And so G6PC3 patients, they don't have to take on starch because they have no metabolic phenotype. So they have less 1,5-anhydrogrucitol in blood to make 1,5-anhydrogrucitol 6-phosphate. So when we, they take on paglifosine, they can reach levels which are lower than the levels that GSD1B patients reach. And so it works very well for GSD1B, but it's a little bit less good than for G6PC3 deficient patients. And I mean, you've, you've talked about the phenotype. What was interesting in Claudia's case is by correcting one problem, you had this knock-on impact on, on several other features. So by addressing the neutropenia and settling the inflammation, you supported weight gain and you improved fasting. Yeah. So it's it, it's a really beneficial, simple intervention around the whole phenotype there. I mean, within the G6PC3 patients, was there any support around the broader phenotype, uh, given that yes. it's not just neutropenia? Yeah, yeah. Well, same thing happens with the G6PC3 because you are addressing the problem of the intestine, which means that you reabsorb the nutrients and it impacts the other, the other aspects of the phenotype, which are called by a problem of the inflammatory bowel disease in this case. It all sounds very promising. Claudia, within your patient, you're obviously keeping some pretty close scrutiny on them with this sort of metabolomic investigations. Is that something that is going to be necessary for all patients? Because obviously it's quite a complicated process or is that more for kind of thoroughness in your case? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, right? Because many practitioners out there are seeing that, that this is an advance on the treatment of patients with GSD-1B, but when we present these tools, they may not be able to utilize it or understand what to do from there on. Clinical metabolomics is available in, in the U.S. and I know most countries in Europe. And we did it sequentially because we were using this off-label medicine, which we have very little information. My recommendation at this point, after seeing the survey from Dr. Groner and everything else, is to at least try to get one sample before and maybe after to document the improvement. But by all means, I think the clinical presentation and the improvement is probably more telling than the, the, the levels, right? I mean, obviously, a biomarker is always important, and especially in the mindset of a metabolic physician, we, we love to have a biomarker that we can follow through longitudinally. But I, I think the clinical presentation and uh, that evaluation is probably more telling of how uh, efficacious the empaglifosine is being with these patients. Now, I think the, the biomarker knowledge is important if we want to do a more rigorous clinical trial in the future. But I think at this point, probably it will help us understanding much better when to increase the dose as the patients are growing and different things like that. But it's not absolutely necessary. But if available, it would also tell you about other aspects of GSD. Like, for instance, in our case, we saw that other metabolites secondary to urine metabolism were also abnormally elevated and they got better. Uh, we also observe uh, low metabolites related to low fructose because these patients are unable to process fructose correctly and most of them are on a restricted fructose diet. So, so you can speculate that you can also understand compliance with dietary management when you have technologies like metabolomics. But again, this is something that needs to be studied long-term with bigger numbers, but if available, I think it's, it's a useful tool for clinicians as they're using this medication with patients with GSD-1B. Thank you. And we go from a, a small patient to a, really a much bigger one because, Sarah, your paper looked at some pregnancies and we're increasingly seeing reports about pregnancies in in our sort of adult metabolic patients. And it's really an exciting um, thing to talk about because it really speaks to the success of metabolic management going forward. What are the challenges of supporting a mother with GSD-1B during a pregnancy? 
Yeah, pregnancy can be very challenging for GSD-1 patients, and this is due to several reasons. The one is that you have many hormonal adaptations, especially at the beginning of pregnancy, and you also have an increasing energy demand of the growing fetus, and both can result in metabolic instability for the mother. And as you all know, there are many women who really struggle with nausea and vomiting, especially during the first trimester, and it can be very difficult to, to keep um, blood glucose levels within a normal range during these difficult times. And additionally, pregnancy is a condition where you have increased estrogen levels, and this is associated with a risk of the growth of adenomas, which can be there before pregnancy already. And what Claudia has already mentioned is if patients have recurrent hypoglycemia, this uh, may result in lactic acidosis. And we know that lactic acidosis is uh, associated with uh, premature labor in, in some women. So these are just some of the challenges that you are facing when you treat a pregnant patient with GSD-1B. It doesn't sound very easy. And certainly within your report, you've got one mother on, you know, for want of a better word, old standard of care therapy, GCSF, and you've got another on uh, this new drug, empagliflozin. If we disregard that the, there is a lack of safety data for the latter in pregnancy, did you find that one was better than the other? I think so, yes. So what we have observed in the in the mother on empagliflozine treatment was that especially the wound healing after the cesarean section was much better than in a patient on GCSF treatment. So both mothers, mothers received um, a cesarean uh, section and especially the one on GCSF had a severely impaired wound healing after the surgery. And what we also saw is that the one on GCSF treatment had a dental abscess during pregnancy in the 22nd week of gestation, while the other women on empagliflozine treatment didn't have any infectious complications during pregnancy at all. And, and I mean, the diff reason for that difference is that the GCSF is making neutrophils, but they're just not good neutrophils, is that? Exactly. This, this is exactly what Maria has told you before. So you, can, you can heal the number or you, you can reach normal neutrophil counts, but you do not restore the function of the neutrophils with a GCSF. And that was really interesting because in the second mother, she already wanted to become pregnant when the empagliflozine treatment was available. And she decided to stay on GCSF because she didn't want to risk anything. And she also decided to be switched on empagliflozine shortly after pregnancy, or at least after breastfeeding. And breastfeeding was very difficult for her. So she stopped after a few weeks and there was still this wound healing problem. And I think we put her on empagliflozine a few weeks after delivery. And with the start of the empagliflozine treatment, we saw much improved wound healing of the cesarean scar. So that was, was a good sign of efficacy also in, in that woman. So based on these very small numbers, you've got a treatment that really looks rather superior. You already described in your GIM paper such a large cohort of, of patients. It seems likely that a, a pregnancy scenario will come around again sooner rather than later. Is there any way we can improve our safety data or is it just a question of having to monitor these pregnancies very closely? I think this is a very important question, but I do not have a good answer um, right now. The problem is that, as Maria has said, we're dealing with a condition uh, with an incidence in one in one million. But one important thing that you have to bear in mind when you talk about safety is that both GCSF and empagliflozine are both not approved for the use in pregnancy. And the difference is that we already have some experience with GCSF during pregnancy because there are other conditions that go along with neutropenia so other than GSD-1B. And we know that most of the offsprings had no problems under GCSF treatment. What we do have is animal data, especially from the red model. And the animal studies have shown that the empagliflozine is able to cross the placenta, especially during late gestation. 
but only to a very limited extent. And what we also know from the mouse model is that there are no direct or indirect harmful effects um, that were observed on the embryonic uh, development of the offspring. And there was no teratogenic effect if uh, the empagliflozin was administered during organogenesis. But it will be really hard to collect safety data in, in patients. And I think that, that time will show us if it can be used in pregnancy or not. And are we able to say here's a consensus guideline for the management of, of GSD-1B in pregnancy, or is it always going to be a highly individualized approach? I think it will always stay very highly individualized. The all-pregnant GSD-1B women will require careful monitoring and, of course, uh, a regular adjustment of their dietary treatment. And what is also really important is that uh, also the delivery is planned in advance and it, it has to be planned in an interdisciplinary team to really minimize the risk for both, for the mother and the child. But I don't think that we will come up with consensus guidelines for this very rare condition soon. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. Um, I think one um, goal that we always have is to to individualize treatments as much as possible. And I think and in the spectrum of GSDs, it's probably one of the diseases where we had the hardest time as clinicians due to, to the impact on uh, enzyme activity of the different pathogenic variants. So some people may have a little bit more residual enzyme activity we might have more hypomorphic variants and they may have more tolerance to fasting uh, rather than others. And, and that is really the magic of continuity and, and treating these patients often to understand where they are in the spectrum. And, and I think it's just hard to write a guideline that will cover all that. But yeah, I think uh, just time and more knowledge, more case reports, it will get, really expand the, the possibilities and collective experiences will be helpful over time. You know, in this line of thought, as Claudia said, I think it's actually interesting to measure the one five hundred before you start, at least to have an idea where you stand. And once you've reached another baseline, because what we notice is that some patients will, will lower the anhydroglucitol more or less. And that's interesting to have that information and then to be able to relate it to the neutrophil counts, the, the clinical signs, in order to really see how can we do better. Because this treatment does not get rid of all the one 5 that we have in blood. So we don't get to zero. Ideally, that's what you wanted. That's what you, you would want. And in order to find a way to do it, and maybe we'll be able to find a way, or at least we can have ideas. I don't know if we're going to find a new drug specific for these, these patients, but if you hope to do that, it's interesting to be able to at least have the beginning and where you are, and then follow it with growth and be able to relate that with the neutrophil counts in the hope of being able to actually reduce these one 5 in blood even more if you don't have anitroglucitol in blood, you won't make anitroglucitol 6-phosphate and your neutrophils should be perfect. Well, that's something to aspire to. I think it's interesting to talk about individualized medicine whilst also trying to build larger patient cohorts so we can learn from experience and how one draws a compromise between developing clinical guidelines based on a cohort of patients versus doing individual things for all our patients. Um, just finally, th this sounds like a drug with plenty of upsides. It, it's hopefully relatively affordable. It seems to work well. It seems to work better than the current standard of care in, in GSD-1B patients than I imagine for G6 PC3 deficiency patients. Are, are there any downsides? What we have seen from our large cohort study with uh, more than 100 patients is that there are few side effects, but some of them can be severe. So um, the urinary tract infections, 
they were really not a big problem in, in our patient cohort. But what we have seen in especially one adult patient is, and this is known for empagliflozine as a side effect, that is especially in, in situations where you cannot guarantee an adequate fluid intake um, and, and you have the risk of dehydration, this can really result in severe ketoacidosis. And we have seen that twice in an adult patient of us, and uh, he ended up in the intensive care unit with a severe ketoacidosis. And he was doing fine shortly after. But what I really want to stress is that if you have especially situations like uh, viral gastroenteritis or situations where you are prone to dehydration, I really think you should stop the empagliflozine for two or three days. It doesn't matter too much to your neutrophils because we know that the metabolic changes are rather slow, but it can really make a difference for the patients. So whenever there's a risk of dehydration, we recommend to stop it for a few days and reintroduce it um, when the patient feels better. And on the other hand, we had few cases of hypoglycemia. It was very hard because this was a questionnaire study and it was really hard to differentiate if these were really caused by the empagliflozine or if it's just the underlying metabolic condition. I'm not aware of any hypoglycemic seizures or severe hypoglycemias, but of course, because you use glucose in the urine, it, it is the, the effect, not the side effect of this treatment because it was meant for diabetic people. Um, and this glucosuria can lead to hypoglycemia, of course, in, in patients with uh, GSD-1B. But it doesn't seem to be a big problem in the daily life of the patients. At least this is my impressions that I had with, with the data that were available to us. I think that when you look a little bit about how this is used in uh, diabetics or I mean the tests that were done, if your blood glucose is below a certain level, then there is really no filtration of glucose in the kidney. So probably what happens, that's how I interpret it, at least um, in the case of GSD-1B patients who might have a tendency to have a slightly lower blood glucose, if it's below a certain level, there won't be, be any renal filtration of glucose. So it won't affect the amount of glucose in blood. And for G6PC3 patients or normal patients, the, the amount of glucosuria that you have makes absolutely no difference. And then we also have another glucose transporter in the kidney, which is SGLT1, which takes up about 10% of the glucose that it's filtered. So there's always some reuptake and the SGLT2 inhibitor does not inhibit SGLT1. So there's always some reuptake via SGLT1. I, I think this is interesting too, because uh, something that I think is actually a protective factor for not so much hypoglycemia in this population is the fact that also getting cornstarch doses every four hours and either in a good dose, I think that protects them from hypoglycemia in this setting. So I was, uh, you know, more confident to do so because we have the the coverage of the cornstarch often in this patient. So I, I think that was also a protective factor for significant hypoglycemia, but, you know, it's, it's more a, a clinical observation and a difficult one to prove. And that's actually quite important for the drug to work in GSD-1B patients because you do need the glucosuria. It's not only via glucosuria, but you do need the glucosuria. There's actually, a, I mean, I, I talk about that in my paper. We found that there's actually a, a small direct effect of the SGLT2 inhibitor, which is not completely specific, a little bit on the 1,5-anitroglucidol transporter. But you do need this cornstarch to have the glucosuria in GSD-1B patients in order for it to work well, probably. It may also be dif uh, different from patient to patient. So I, I'm aware of patients 
who have a longer or who tolerate a longer fasting period under empagliflozine. But I have also seen patients who need more carbohydrates per hour on empagliflozine treatment. So it can, can has to do with a, also with inflammatory bowel disease, which is getting better under empagliflozine. Um, but it, it can be very individual. So I think there are many open questions that <laughs> need to be resolved. And then maybe in terms of long term, it's also interesting to look at the kidneys of these patients. Although, you know, this has been tried in diabetics and there's a lot of the toxicity that has been studied and excluded. This is a different disease. And so I think it's interesting to, to record what doesn't work with the treatment and to record what works with the treatment over time so that uh, we can then see maybe how to do better. The only downside that I also like to come in here, since this is the, the section, and in our patient, we observe joint pain, generalized arthralgias when uh, when we went to the highest dose. And uh, she was 11 at the time of treatment, and so she was able to tell us that clearly. And um, once we backed up to the previous dose, the arthralgia resolved in 24 hours. And that is, is a non-side effect in patients with diabetes, at least from the diabetes data with empaglifosin. So I was I was curious at, to see that that wasn't that prominent in, in Dr. Groner's court, um, but it was something that we observed. So that's the importance of the N1 reports, right? Because we, we can continue seeing the spectrum of these, even when it's just one experience, I think it's, it's very relevant to keep keeping this data out there. Okay, it sounds like generally it's a, it's a well-tolerated drug with just a couple of caveats. Sarah, did you want to um, give a quick plug for your work collecting more information about these patients? We have started another online uh, questionnaire for patients because in this first questionnaire, um, we mainly collected data um, from the doctors, so clinical data like neutrophil counts, inflammatory bowel disease data, and so on. But at least as important are the data that the patients can provide because we are really interested in the impact of this new medication on their daily life. So do they have um, missing days at school or um, the parents at work, for example, has the, the appetite changed? Um, how about their physical activity? Can they do more sports? Um, how well do they tolerate their cornstarch? There have been patients that, um, that have not tolerated the special cornstarch, the glycosate with GSD-1B. We also want to know, for example, if this changes under empagliflozine treatment and all these questions. So we have approached all doctors that we know and all um, patient organizations that we know, and we have spread uh, information about this online questionnaire. So it's very easy to answer for the families. It just takes maybe 20 minutes and it will provide, I think, really important information for other patients and families who may be still hesitant about this new drug. And we have already collected data from more than 70 families, but we, we try to, to collect really as many answers as possible. So whoever listens to this podcast and has a patient on empagliflozine, we would be very happy if they would forward the link to the questionnaire or just approach us and, and forward the link to the questionnaire to their families or patients. And can patients find it directly themselves? Yeah, the patients do it themselves. And where would they um, go to find it? Um, actually, the easiest way is just to contact us, but uh, we also spread the information um, via all patient organizations like QGSD1B in the US, for example, and also in Europe, um, the, the MetaP ERN. But if you struggle to find the link, just write me an email and I will be happy to share it. So I'm just going to say something else since we're here. What we're doing also and it's almost ready, is we're preparing um, a way to test 1,5-anitroglucitol and 1,5-anitroglucitol-6-phosphate in dry blood spots. It's that, you know, at birth, if you have a neutropenia, 
you could very quickly see if it's a G6 species 3 or a GSD1B. So that could be quite nice. Well, that does sound cool. I hope that when you've got more to report, you'll come back and tell us all about it. Yeah. Um, I'm mindful that I've kept all of you for longer than I said I would. So all that remains is for me to say, if you'd like to read these articles, please click the link in the podcast description and you can find Maria's article on the main journal web pages and you can find Claudia and Sarah's articles on the JMD Reports website. Claudia, Maria, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.